For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Well, Larry Hughes is going to pop out and get the ball. Jordan's going to rub his man off of Leitner and then cut down the center and gets a nice pass from Larry Hughes. Welcome to this week's Believe in Wizards podcast. I'm Matt Moderna. I'm joined by my co-host, Larry Hughes. And uh, today we're going to be joined by really uh, interesting guest, former Wizards center, Brendan Haywood. So Brendan was obviously a former teammate of Larry's and Michael Jordan. So so given the, you know, the news with the documentary and everything going on, we thought it was a nice time to have Brendan on and, and to be able to talk about you know their experiences playing with the GOAT. So Larry, uh, what are you looking forward to today? Uh, just you know, really to connect with another one of the great teammates, uh, good friends around the league. Me and Brendan kind of grew up uh, in, in, the, in the same space, we're in the same uh, high school class. So we traveled around uh, even before the NBA. So just to talk about, you know, where life has brought us and just the different experiences that we've had. And he's a colorful guy, man. So I thought it was it would be good to have him, you know, have him jump on with us today. Has there been like a, you know, a former teammate group text going around during during the documentaries on Sundays and stuff? No, no, it's it's really through social media now. A lot of people spend time on social media versus even text messages, you know, a, a lot now. So we are connecting through any, you know, any post, um, you know, any sort of, you know, history, you know, image that pops up. We connect through that, uh, talk a little bit of trash, you know, on different posts. Um, and we're all connected. So if, if one if one of the guys posts something or make a comment on something, we all you know tend to see it and then we'll drop you know, comments on it. So that's um, that's the, the beauty of, of, of social media for, for us a little bit older guys that didn't grow up in the space in the NBA. I would definitely be curious to see what the uh, the user usage numbers are for Twitter and Instagram for like the half hour, hour immediately after the documentary finishes because you just see a flurry of posts from everybody and comments, like you said. Right, right. Yeah, and just using, using the... the um, commercials to, to check the messages not necessarily respond but <laughs> but to check them and then get right back to, to watch it that's one of the things you know been kind of throwing me with this is that you know some of them are like sort of fake commercials you know they do the vault thing but then there's yeah, like yeah. statistics so i'm like afraid to look away half the time yeah. no it, it's it's a great experience man it, it's a great experience a great doc uh, like you said even i, I was kind of um confused on the first go around of the commercials uh, when that popped up I didn't actually know what was going on so my son was like man that's not real yeah the the Kenny Main one that they did that's the old sports center clip it took me like six times watching that to figure out that they just like dubbed over you know like photoshopped in his mouth saying different things now yeah for sure I mean that, that's technology too man yep. it's like the, the beauty of, of what we have uh, on the technology side it's like we can connect through uh, you know, Zoom and all these different different outlets, man, to, to really be in, have an impact. I tell you what, this thing has got to have been good for for Zoom as as a business overall. I, I don't know about you, but I, I'd done Skype or GoToMeeting or all these things, but I had never used a Zoom call prior to all this pandemic stuff. But it's pretty much seems to be now any is the only thing anybody uses now. Yeah, I think it's just the the nature of it. I mean, I've tried a, a you know a number of them, like the go tos and, and the skypes, and and now Zoom is kind of the big thing. But you know, really finding you know what's the most reliable source, and, and I mean, Zoom has been pretty pretty good. Shout out shout out to those guys, but you know, they, they've been pretty good so far. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe we can get a little sponsorship from them out of this if we keep plugging them. Right, right. They they're giving away everything for free, so they're gonna need it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So, Larry, I just want to get your, you know, your quick thoughts about uh, what you saw, you know, on Sunday night. Any anything jump out to you? Uh, yeah, man. Just the um, again, the, the coaching, uh, the carousel, and how you know how the, the coaching works. Uh, just the behind the scenes uh, communication that a general manager might have, or president of basketball operations might have, um, with the guy that's coaching in a completely different 
league and, you know, being a college game and, or, you know, high school game, just those relationships that these guys have uh, unbeknownst to the coaches actually coaching, that there could be an opportunity where someone else could slide in and it, it has nothing to do with, you know, wins or losses. All right, folks, we are joined here today by our guest, Brendan Haywood. Brendan was a 2001 first-round draft pick, was the starting center for the Washington Wizards for the better part of a decade, and uh, was an NBA champion with the Mavericks and obviously a teammate of Larry's and Michael Jordan. So I thought it was a good time to bring him in to talk a little bit about, uh, obviously, the Last Dance documentary that's going on. Brendan, uh, how you been? I'm doing pretty good, man. Thanks for having me, fellas. Yeah, it's, it's our pleasure. I think uh, Larry and I kind of opened the show with a little bit of our thoughts on, on Sunday night on episodes three and four, but what'd you think? Uh, you know what? I thought it was, I thought the documentary was, was incredible so far. I've loved everything about it. It's really given us an inside look on, uh, on that championship team and all and that run they went on, all they went through. Thought it was a little bit unfortunate um, that it seems like Mike and Isaiah still have like bad tension to this day. Um, but outside of that, man, I, I thought everything else was great. I liked that. Like, I, I loved all the inside, the inside into Dennis Rodman and, and who he was and, and what he struggled with. And so I, I, I like how it was really taking us behind the scenes because, you know, being 40 years old, man, I, this is the type of basketball I grew up on. With, with Dennis in the documentary, just talking about that, that 40, 48 hour leave of absence. Right. I mean, that's, you know, you, you hear about those kind of stories, but I mean, that's, that's just crazy to think that you can take just take that time and just, just go straight AWOL 48 hours, but not only go for 48 hours, but ask for permission to go for, you know, going on vacation. You had anybody through your time that took a took a leave of absence or vacation, you know, midstream, midseason? Uh man. I don't have anybody that asked for a vacation. That's the wildest thing I think I've ever heard in my life. Like in the middle of a season, not just say, nah, I need a rest day because my knee's sore, but I need a vacation. We both played with Gil, and I thought Gil was like one of the wildest guys I ever played with, but I've never had a guy take a vacation. I will say this. There was one time in Dallas where we could not find Lamar Odom for practice. Like, we just did not know where he was. But I don't. he didn't ask for a vacation. He was just AWOL for a day. But outside of that, I've, I've, ne- I've never heard anything like this. I don't know what was wilder. The fact that Dennis asked, or the fact that Phil Jackson gave it to him. Like, yeah, go to Vegas, kick it. Right. <laughs> go hang right, with Crawford no. Electra. Have a good time. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I got a funny story. Just uh, Mookie Blaylock. Mookie Blaylock, when I was in Golden State, and I would definitely have to fact check this, but Mookie Blaylock left the team, and I don't think I've seen him since. What? He never came back? Mookie never came back to the team. We gotta, we gotta, we gotta look this up. We gotta look this up because obviously this was years and years and years ago. But if my memory is correct, man, Mookie Blaylock left the Golden State Warriors and did not come back. We gotta, we gotta check that out, Matt. No, he just didn't show up anymore. He, he didn't show up. I, I don't think I've seen Mookie since then. Wow. There are missing persons uh, bulletin out for him somewhere. Well, he he's around. He's around. You know, he's around. He has a, had, a, had a son that was playing high level college football, but I believe that he left the Golden State Warriors situation and did not return. We got it. We got a fact check. Yeah, I had never heard nothing like that. Like I said, the worst I got was Lamar. Lamar was just gone for a day. We couldn't find him. Hey, they eventually tracked him down. This is how you know the situation was getting out of hand, Larry. We couldn't find Lamar Odom when they found him. They figured out he was at his condo. They sent Delonte West to go get Lamar Odom. <laughs> I was like, who, who signed off on that? Y'all going to send D West to go get him? That's man, that's the blind him. leading the blind, man. That's like Stevie Wonder telling Ray Charles to drive. <laughs> no, no way. No yes, way. that is true. We couldn't find Lamar. When we finally figured out where he was at, they sent Delonte West over to Lamar Odom's condo. It was crazy. Uh, other other than GA during the time we played with the Wizards, who, who would be a person that you would think that would just up and bounce like that? Just during our time, the time we were there. Hmm. I got a name for you. Well, I'm trying to see. I'm trying see. I was there so long. I over there's some certain yeah. players I got that I'm like, nah. I could pick him, but he don't. He didn't play with Larry. Yeah. Uh, ooh, while we were there, who? He marched to his own beat, his own drum. Christian Leitner. Yes. I, I could see Leitner just being like, you know what? I'm going to go off and I'm going to see y'all when I get back. 
he was the one guy that I think that that probably could have pulled that off during the time we were there with the Wizards. I can see Christian Leighton pull up. We, did you were you there with Samaki Walker? Yes, I was. I was. Yes, I was. I can yes, see Samaki doing that too. <laughs> Because, you know, Samaki would just sometimes be on his own thing. Yes, sir. Don't you remember that day of practice? He was just staring at the wall. <laughs> I don't know what I don't know what was ingested, but he just was staring at the wall all practice long, man. Whatever was in that drink, whatever was in that bottle. I don't know. I think he might have had some before the drink, but I don't know. But there was this day he was just sitting, sitting down to practice. He never checked in. And he just stared at the wall. I was like, man, I don't know what he owned, but I ain't messing with him. So I can see Samaki and Christian Leitner maybe pulling that. For sure. Yeah, the, the league is full of characters, man. Yeah. I'm kind of shocked that nobody's put together a list of like the all 48-hour vacation team, you know, like the Dion Waiters kind of guys, of, of people that would just also march to, you know, to their own kind of beat. It would, it would an definitely. Easy list. It, would, it would not. The list nowadays wouldn't be as long. The list would be longer from when like I first got in the league and when Larry first got in the league because there was only one drug test. They called it the idiot test. If you pass this one drug test in training camp, they didn't drug test you throughout the rest of the year so you could do whatever if yeah. that was what you were into. So like when I first got to the league, I played with some guys that I was looking at them like, bro, what are you, what are you on today? <laughs> so it, today is different. They got four random drug tests. So it's a lot, it's a lot different. But back then, yeah, there's a whole lot of guys that could have got missing. You know what? That, that's why. That's why the, the beauty of the doc, man. It, it, it means so. It means so much to me. It's a, you know, for all the other people to kind of see, or the, or the younger people to, to see how the league was was run. You know, and to see how we operate. And I think what what's getting a bad rap is like the animosity that people had or players had towards each other nowadays because we transplanted in today's game and today's environment. What, what what are your thoughts on you know we, we watched in the doc as far as like the shaking hands part of the you know part of the documentary I mean do you feel any sort of way whether you saw a team you know shake hands or do you feel a certain way if, if a team didn't shake didn't shake your hand you know leaving the court win or loss man if you want to shake hands it's cool if you don't want to shake hands it's cool it's not the end of the world to me like you know I know some people are big on it's got to be all about sportsmanship and. And I know this has become a big thing because Isaiah didn't shake uh, Mike's hand. But at the end of the day, it's not a big deal for me. Um, if I'm Isaiah Thomas, I wouldn't even address it. Like, you were the bad boy Pistons. Your reputation was we were the bad boys. We did things our way. If I was Isaiah, I wouldn't try to rationalize why I didn't shake his hand. I'd be like, yo, I didn't shake his hand. So what? Y'all can kiss my butt. I didn't shake it then. I won't shake it now. Like, just, just be the bad boys. That's, that's the yeah. image that people are going to have of you. Anytime you go against Michael Jordan, no one's listening because everybody's a fan of Mike. So you might as well just be true to yourself. Did, did, did you, you know, we played against Chicago in, in, the, in the playoffs. Did you shake Chicago's hand after, after we beat them in the, in, in the playoffs that year? I probably did. I don't remember, but I just, I, I came up on shaking hands. So I'm going to shake hands regardless. But it's like, the only way I would be offended is if somebody... If I went to shake somebody's hand and they walked past me, now that I would be offended by. It. But if like some guys left the court early, that wouldn't bother me. But I think we shook. I think we shook hands with Chicago. That was a yeah, wild and series. And that was a wild series. That was a wild year of, of battling those guys. And whether you shake hands or not, it's just a part of. It's just a part of that battle. So I, I get a little frustrated when I see people think that you know, shaking hands is 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 sweet. I mean, you shake hands if you want to. You don't, and and, and you move yeah. on. If you don't, you don't. Like Larry Bird didn't. Like Larry Bird had a quote said he didn't shake hands with the Lakers, Pistons, nobody else. He walked off. Like I mean, that's how he chose to handle it. Like I don't. I'm not worried about how somebody else chooses to handle it. But you know, like I said, and when we played against Chicago, I think we did shake hands. We, we, yeah, we beat them in Chicago. We beat them in DC. That was the game after Gil hit the shot. So uh, we, I think we shook their hand. Hey man, do you realize that in that in that moment where Gil hit that shot, that was supposed to be your play? That was. That was supposed to be your yeah. play. That was. That was because I don't think he was having a great game uh, that game. And we were, we were struggling a little bit. So that was definitely, you know, supposed to be my play. But if you can see my face. When, I, when he let it go, I knew it was good. When he, when he let it go, I knew it was good. And I just started walking towards the locker room. I knew it was good. 
Hey, Brendan, how about a couple years later when you guys had that series against uh, LeBron and the Cavaliers with Gilbert and the free throw stuff? Was there any animosity at the end of that series? Uh, that wasn't animosity at the end of the series. We all shook hands. It, it, it was what it was. But during the series, yeah, there was a lot of animosity. Uh, you know, um, guys were going back and forth with LeBron. Um, I, I had the hard foul on LeBron. Uh, I think this is when Larry had left, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, so we had, oh, yeah, Deshaun Stevenson and LeBron James going back and forth. Uh, Damon Jones was yapping. I was I was really mad yeah, Damon Jones was yapping because he wasn't even playing. I'm just like, like, dude, like, I'll, I'll take some yapping from, like, you know, Braun or everybody else. But I'm still trying to figure out why they was even interviewing Damon Jones. You wasn't even getting in the game. And then to make it worse... He was yapping. He wasn't getting in the game, and he hit the game winner in the playoff series to close it out. I'm like, dude, the dude yapping, not playing, gets in and finally hits a shot. This is the worst. But outside of that, it wasn't like I wanted to, like, punch Damon Jones in the face. Or, like, Damon Jones coached me for a year in Cleveland, and we laughed and joked all the time. So it wasn't even, like, the animosity isn't like what the Bulls and the Pistons had, like, Bill Lane Beer and Isaiah Thomas, they still don't like Michael Jordan to this day and vice versa. So, like, I don't believe that exists in basketball back when we were playing in the playoffs. It damn sure don't exist now. And that's just something that got left in the 80s and the 90s. Yeah, I look at that as a, just a transition and evolution of the time. I mean, you're not going to like a guy that's, that's swinging rights and lefts. I mean, real, he's really trying to, to, to punch you or he's really trying to take you out of the air basketball is moved to the side when you start to, to, to do that. I mean, when you start to throw punches and actually try to, you know, connect with guys. So it's a different, it's a different game now. Yeah. So Doug Collins, man, they talked about Doug Collins. You know, Dougie. Documentary. Dougie, Dougie, Dougie. Dougie. Dougie, Dougie. What, what are your thoughts on the conversations or the comments, you know, just as far as to how, you know, Doug was really, you know, Mike's guy or Mike was Doug's guy and, you know everything was sort of geared around Mike and that was kind of his demise as far as being in Chicago what, what, what's your thoughts on coach you know what this is the part of the documentary that for me is the most eye-opening because when I was watching Mike and understanding basketball it was in the 90s when Phil Jackson was there I never really watched you know 86 I was born in 79 I wasn't watching and understanding Michael Jordan at that age and so I didn't understand how much as far as like Doug catered the offense to Mike. And then fast forwarding to when we played with Mike, yo, he did the exact same thing. Like, like, he's, like yo, I was, watching the, I was watching the documentary like Doug Collins really did the exact same thing even though Michael Jordan was like 39 years old. Man, we were running the triangle. We ain't had no business running the triangle. Our offense was so bad for our team. Like... I remember you were having a great year at the point. You weren't running the triangle to, like, their, their satisfaction. Man, they, they, they put T. Lou. You got injured, and they just kept T. Lou in. I was like, Boogie's killing. What are y'all doing? So it, it's, it's incredible to me to see that the same things that Doug was doing with Mike in the 80s, he was doing in the 2000s. He was really catering everything to Michael Jordan, and the evolution is – Michael Jordan became a better player in the triangle. He didn't score as much, but the team won more. And so it, it was wild to see, like, Doug still try to cater everything to Mike, even though Mike was 39. And then I see why, because that's what he did in the 80s, and I never knew it was like that. But I tell you what, though, Doug seemed real salty that Phil took that job. I ain't going to lie. Doug seemed salty in that documentary. Oh, man, I, it brought back so many memories, man. When I, I saw them or, or was listening to them talk about you know, how things were catered to. And, and even when, when Doug told the story of, you know, him chewing the gum so so much that he had white stuff around his mouth and him told him, hey, man, wipe that stuff off your mouth. It put me right in the space of me looking at Doug with that same stuff around his mouth and wanting to tell him the exact same thing. It put me right back into that space. And I can remember one time, man, we were playing, we were at home and, the game was going the way the game was going, and it was time for him to come out, and he went to the bench. And he had his set times when he would go back in, and it was we, we knew exactly what it was. This particular time, man, it, was, it wasn't his time to even go back into the game. And him just got up, checked himself into the game. 
And that was the first time I've seen a player just get up and walk to the, you know, walk to the scores table. Don't ask the coach nothing. Just check into the check into the game. So that let me know, you know, what sort of relationship and who was, you know, who was really running the show, you know, during during that time in DC when Em and uh Em and Doug was there. Oh yeah, and I saw Em do that a couple man. Saw him do that a couple times. The one I really saw all the time would be when a player would come in for Em, but he was rolling, so he wouldn't want to come out, and he would just wave him off. Like I seen Byron Russell and MJ was like, "Yo, who you got?" He's like, I got you. He's like, no, you don't. You better take your ass back to the bench. I'm like, damn, that's cold. <laughs> and that's just that's just what happened. And it, but it just goes to show you, like, for me, like now I understand the dynamic. Doug always catered everything to MJ. And then when he came back, even though he came back in the 2000s, the coach when Mike was older, that was still the relationship. Like, dude, I'm gonna cater everything to MJ. So that was probably the most eye-opening part of the doc was their relationship because I didn't know much about their relationship in the eighties because I was too young at that point. That, that was, that was definitely one that, that, that stood out to me, man. So I, I'm loving this doc and it's bringing up, you know, old memories and, and old nuggets that we kind of forgot, forgot that that was going on at, at, at that time, man. So I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. Good. It's real good. Especially now that we don't have sports. It's all I got, man. Every Sunday night at nine o'clock, my wife already know, man, don't bother me. Don't bring no babies over here. From 9 to 11, I'm watching the documentary now. You better go on about your business. That's all I got. That's all I got. Listen, I've been watching the entire series with a smile, man. I, I actually watch it with the family, so I just look around to see if they see what I'm seeing, see if they're really, you know, experiencing what I'm experiencing. And it's not quite the same because they didn't necessarily, you know, live it and they can't put themselves in that space. So, but the next one, I may have to watch it by myself to zone out. Brendan, we talked about this a little bit during our show open, and I, and I was asking Larry if you guys have like a former players group chat going on, you know, during during the documentary. But but Larry was saying, you know, it's kind of checking social media and refreshing during commercials and stuff like that. Is that how you've been kind of processing things? Yeah, man, I got like some of my friends that I talk to, like like you know, like I'll check in sometimes with like Jared Jeffries. We talking about certain stuff, like yo, that's wild because he played with MJ too. He was with us, and but I don't. We don't really have like a group chat or anything like that but i'll just check in with certain guys like just looking at the documentary and just seeing what their their perspective is and everybody has their own perspective based on if you played with mike what years you played with mike and if you played with him at all one of the things you hear is that maybe rip hamilton toward toward the end of his time in washington had a little bit of tension with that you know what we were just talking about with the way doug kind of ran the offense through mj did you did you feel that in the moment where there was some kind of tension i guess uh, I'm not sure if I felt any tension because Rip was so much younger than Mike. And whether there was tension or not, only Rip could answer that. I know Rip ended up signing to the Jumpman uh, shoe brand, so if there was tension, they they found a way to date it quickly because throughout Rip's career, he always wore Mike's shoes. I tell you what, if I don't like you, I ain't wearing your shoes all the time. So um, Good point. maybe there was a little bit of a... I, I don't think there was a contention. I mean, I don't think there was any tension. I think maybe there was a disconnect on how the offense was being run because I know Rip had a good year and the next thing you know he was gone and Jerry Stackhouse was brought in to replace him and there was definitely a tension between Stack and Mike like that that was uh it was never anything said but man you could cut that tension boy you could you could cut it with a knife like especially when they had to go against each other in practice it was like Stack wanted Mike to pass the torch but but Mike wanted Stack to be his new Scotty Pippen and man that now that was some tension but Rip and Mike, I never felt that. Yeah, I, I just put put myself back into that space too, man. And just those guys being from the same area, they went to the same college, basically playing the same position as as a two guard. And it was just Stack wasn't willing to relinquish the the fact that that's MJ. Like he wasn't willing to say that's the guy. You know, obviously it was later in M's career, but you know, I just thought that that was a interesting group of characters that we had because we had a lot of guys that were you know were willing to fight you know and really willing to scrap but i just think the, the whole hierarchy of you know who was actually leading was it actually the coach leading or was him actually leading the situation which that probably caused the most you know tension and i can remember playing i think i was actually injured or just watching or something when we played uh the lakers out in 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 LA. Ooh, Kobe. Kobe got cooking that night. I think Kobe had like, I don't know. He hey, Kobe had 40 in the first half. 
He had 40 in the first half, and man, Doug Collins tapped tapped Kobe on the backside and told him, like, good work or good shot. And Stack lost it. Stack lost it on Doug just for the fact that if you're rolling with me, you are with me, and you're definitely not congratulating the guy in midstream when he busted my ass. And that from then on, man, I don't I just think it was it was it was a done deal from then on. Do you guys feel like those, you know, that team in particular underachieved that year because of some of the behind the scenes stuff? Like, I think you guys went 37 and 52, I want to say, somewhere in that ballpark. Is that, I mean, should that team have been better? Nah. <laughs> I, don't think, I, don't, I, I don't think we underachieved, man. Like, if we, like, really thinking about it, the whole process and setup of the team uh, was backwards. I didn't know it at the time. But basing your offense around a 39-year-old, 40-year-old uh, aging superstar, not developing your young guys, guys like Kwame Brown and Jared Jeffries, myself, all those other guys, Larry, Larry's young, like, that's backwards. You don't base your, like, you don't fight to be the eighth seed and make the playoffs and feature older guys and not your younger players. And Stack wasn't, and even with Stack, I think Stack was maybe like 27. So the offense, like, you know, Stack probably was, the offense probably should have been built more around Stack, if we're being honest. That's what you would do if you were a if from a GM standpoint today. No GM is like, man, we're breaking our necks to be the eighth seed and focus around and focus our offense around our older players that are in their forties. Like that is backwards. So I don't think we underachieved. I don't No. I, I, I think we were really going through, you know, going through the motions as far as to just, you know, just trying to understand, you know, what kind of players we were gonna be, you know, in the league. Like like Jay said, we were young. I mean, I was coming here his first time in the free agency and those guys that just got drafted. I mean, so this was a, a was a young group. We were, you know, trying to figure it out. So I think the where we went the next couple of years, you know, the next year after that. I mean, that's where you know that's where the growth came from. But you can see the young guys kind of get a chance to play some basketball there. Is that hard in the moment to just sort of say, okay, you know, maybe we're not making a deep run this year. Let me just take what I can, you know, what I can learn from these guys, what I can get from MJ, what I can work on with my own game. Is that a hard thing to kind of put the winning aside and just sort of focus on growth and development? It's not really hard because you don't know any better. I was a, I was a second year, first, second year player with MJ. I didn't know how a team was supposed to be run. Like, I know that now, but that's because I've been retired for five years and I played for 14. At that time, I'm so happy to be in the NBA, playing on a team, getting a chance to learn from Michael Jordan, that I'm not even focusing on the fact that our front office is failing us and doing things backwards. Like, I, I'm just like, yo, I'm trying to be the best player I can be. I'm trying to establish myself in the league, get a little bit of respect, get to my next contract, get me a little bit of some of that change. See, Larry was on his second deal. I was trying to get there. I was trying to eat, baby. I was trying to get to the yams. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's like you said you, you never know until you know and you have to experience it you have to go through it you know I was just I was really happy to be recruited and, and signed you know with Washington I mean M was, was playing but he was really leading the, the offense as well so I was just kind of happy to be involved with the situation and, and I didn't know what I didn't know I was and, just and happy to be there I'm actually glad you asked that question because that is what you because I was a young player and didn't know and then when you go on to other franchises, you start seeing how things are done. That's what organizations talk about when they talk about organ organizational culture. Because the organization sets the culture for how things are supposed to be done. So the young guys that don't know, they learn quickly and they learn how to do the right things. And so like that comes down to culture. And, and you, we, I didn't know what culture was supposed to be when I was that young. So is that guys like, you know, the general manager or the coach or whoever kind of taking you aside and sort of explaining like, hey, here's where we are in this process and this is what we're looking for, goals for the year, that kind of thing? The general manager doesn't really say what the team is supposed to be looking for. But for the most part, they tell you like the general manager a lot of times delegates that responsibility to the coach and your coach gives you a role definition of what you're supposed to do. One of the biggest things I learned from going from Dallas to D.C. was role definition. It was important to Dallas. Like, if you stepped outside of your role, you're going to the bench. Like, if you were supposed to shoot the ball and you didn't shoot, you're going to sit down. You were not going to sit down for not taking shots. You're going to, I mean, for, for missing shots, you're going to sit down for not taking them. Or if you were a guy that, for me, I was a rebounder, shot blocker. If I came out there taking a fadeaway jump shot, my ass was going to the bench. And so when you're a young player, you need to understand what working looks like 
and what what and how you work as a group like every this everybody's on the same uh working wavelength and then understand what your role is in dallas if you didn't play a certain amount of minutes you had to run immediately after the game you had to get your cardio in and you had to come in early the next day that was the requirement and then when you got in the game this is what you were allowed to do and so you understand what the the culture is set you know in dc like we were just trying to figure it all out on the fly and and then on top of that we're for we're we're favoring everything towards MJ. So it was a very weird culture. I didn't understand how weird it was until I was out of it and, and more of an adult. Yeah, and I, I say that they are, you know, speaking, speaking the same language. You know, you, you have the general managers and the coach that's speaking the same language. And, and players quickly know when there's a disconnect between, you know, what the coach is saying and what the general, you know, the general manager is saying because things for some reason are, are somehow always leak out to what the expectations are from a, general manager standpoint or from the organization standpoint to what the coach is doing. So what makes it most important is to have those players around that present that culture or, or they have that culture built in, you know, on the court. And then that's where you can see that transfer between, you know, the organization and also make it to the players as well. But if you don't have the players in place to, to represent that culture, it's, it's not going to work. I mean, I can remember learning, you know, just a little small things from, from, from guys. And maybe it wasn't the organizational culture, so to speak, but it was the way of the league and the way how things operated and how Charles Oakley would carry himself as far as being a guy that sets screens and communicates to his teammates or, or how Jerry Stackhouse wouldn't back down from an elephant. These sort of things that players carry with them, you kind of start to pick up certain tendencies and traits. And as a young kid, a young player coming in, you need that that organization to, to really solidify stuff so you can be successful. Sometimes they blame it on players and, you know, this guy's not successful or he can't do this or he can't do that. But just look at his foundation. Look at his, his organization. Look at, you know, who he's following. You know, and that can tell the story in a lot of uh, situations when you start to talk about what a, what a player can and can't do. You guys both came in into Washington, um, you know, when you signed in Brennan when you were drafted and it was the sort of, Doug Collins, Wes Unseld, MJ, you know, dynamic, but eventually transitioned to uh, Eddie Jordan and Ernie Grunfeld. Did, did things improve in that regard when it got to those guys? Were they more cohesive or on the same page kind of later in your Washington tenure? It's kind of like Larry said, you can tell when guys aren't on the same page. We knew Ernie Grunfeld and Eddie Jordan were never on the same page. They were never on the same page and it was easy to see. And it's not like players are looking for dissension so they can go to one or the other, but you understand when the GM and the head coach are in lockstep. And so that, that basically says, listen, I got to get in line because I can't, I, can't, I can't jump the head coach's head and go over him and talk to the GM because I'm not going to get any sympathy there because they're on the same page. It was easy to see that Ernie and Eddie weren't on the same page. And honestly, there was, there, we, lacked, we lacked structure. We had incredible talent, but we lacked structure. One of the first things that myself, uh, Karan Butler and Deshaun Stevenson said to each other, like uh, probably like, like after when we got to Dallas, we're like, yo, this team is winning. But like, yo, we're like, we had more talent in DC. Like we had more individual talent, but like we would just go off on our own thing. And so like you could really see that even though Eddie Jordan and Ernie got there, that there still wasn't the structure in place. I think the best, the best example of, of a player leaving D.C. and finally finding structure would be JaVel McGee. Because JaVel McGee was in D.C. and he was just all over the place. The structure wasn't there. Now, he, since he went on to Denver, he played a little bit better, but still, it wasn't the same. When he went to Golden State, it was almost like for the first time in his career, he had structure. This is the way things are done. From the top down, all the best players echoed the same things as the coaching staff and the GM. And JaVel became a member, a key member and contributor of a championship team. And on top of that, he was able to go to the Lakers and get several contracts and play well for them. People forget, before he signed there, he was on his way out of the league. And those guys with structure are able to change what the narrative is. And I think that that's important that we, you know, we highlight that as just because the game is getting so big, because you know so many players are coming in and they have potential, they have this, this huge ceiling that people are creating for them. But if these guys don't roll into the right situation, then you talk about a two, three, maybe a three-year career, you know, with all the talent in the world. 
but with no structure. You know, so that's 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 very important to, to being successful, man. And I, I definitely think that if I didn't have the structure that I had with, with going to Cleveland, you know, really with starting in Washington. I mean, I, I feel like I figured out some things that work as far as the, how to prepare myself. But it was different going from from Washington uh, to Cleveland as far as the understanding of what the you know what that order was, what that cadence was going to be. You but and one of the things I think was underrated about Larry. Because Larry doesn't doesn't talk a lot, but when he speaks, it's powerful. We'd always talk like, yo, like, like whenever Gil would go off on the deep end, like Larry could go talk to him. And we'd be like, yo, what are you saying to him? You don't even be saying but like three words. And, and Gil will be back. And so when you talk about the structure and you talk about the culture and leadership, the one thing I think the Wizards messed up on is that when they when they let Larry walk, they didn't realize they let the leader walk out of the building. Everybody thought Gil was the leader because he was the loud one with the most bravado. He was scoring all the points. Larry was the one that could speak to everybody. He could come talk to me and be like, yo, Eddie's tripping, chill. He could come talk to Jared. Jared, I need you dunking everything. He would get Jared in a more aggressive mind state. He could even talk to Etan Thomas, which was different because Etan was on his black power zen stuff that a lot of people didn't even mess with him like that. Larry could go talk to Etan. Yo, I'm going to give you a couple looks on the block, but I need you to do this. And then... He could go talk to Gil, and Gil might be out in left field talking crazy. And so when you talk about culture, when you let the leader go, then the culture goes a little bit awry. Like, after Larry left, he probably didn't realize this. Like, we had a, a literally had guns in our locker room. and there were, But before we had guns in our locker room, we had a BB gun fight in our locker room, and nobody was suspended. That ain't going to happen with Bug on the watch because the leader was gone. And then Ernie... And Eddie, they weren't doing anything as far as, like, discipline and, and speaking to guys the way they needed to. So that's a key component into being a good team is to understand the culture and leadership. We literally had a BB gun fight, multiple BB guns, BBs popping off all around all the lockers, and nobody in the front office said anything. And then we get guns in the locker room, and they wonder where they came from. Well, hell, you didn't say anything about the BB gun fight. They thought it was all good. <laughs> the natural progression, right? Yeah. <laughs> the, the natural progression. Yeah. I, I, felt, I, I felt that, man. I, I felt that because I think that, like, we, we are similar in age, and, and, you know, I could have conversations with, with, with everybody on the team in, in a way that they knew that I wasn't trying to get over on them. I wasn't trying to take away, you know, their shine because I was such a, you know, kind of a, a laid back guy when I spoke you you knew that it was it was for real and if I said that I was going to pass you the basketball at the two minute mark then I was going to pass you the basketball at the two minute mark so you know when I left to, to go to Cleveland it was it was really tough because those were my guys you know those were my guys and um, you know I, I tell this story I've told this story before if I had to do it all over again if I stay in Washington we have an opportunity to to do some really, really good things, right? I mean, if I stay in Washington, we have some, the opportunity to do some really, really good things because we had size, we had aggressive guys, we had guys that liked each other. Um, and then we were young because these guys are still on, on rookie deals. So blaming on Ernie and not so much on Shep. Is that a conscious decision on your on your choice, like recognizing that, hey, maybe there is a bit of a leadership void, so I need to pick my spots and, and kind of speak up on certain things? Or is that just how you're, you know, you're wired and it just was a good fit for what that team needed? I did. That's my nature. That's my nature. I mean, it, it, you can't talk about it all the time. You just got to present it um, and have people gravitate towards you. And then once once you get that confidence that, that you know, you feel that they know that, that you want to lead them down the wrong road, I mean, me and Brendan, we talked about or in, in games, we would throw the ball up. Why not drive the basketball and just toss the ball to the rim? He's seven foot everything. He'll get it, catch it, and put it in. But we couldn't get three or four guys to actually have that thought process while I was there. It may have happened after I left, but I was trying to get that mindset through the entire team is to make sure that we – you know what I'm saying? Make sure that everyone can play to their strength. I played fast. I took a lot of bad shots, but I was going to steal the basketball and get it back to make up for me taking that bad shot. And that was a mentality that I had. If I even thought that I did something that wasn't right, I was going to try to go and steal the basketball so I can make up for my, for my team so they would know that 
hey, I'm still in it with you, even though, you know, I, I went off on my own a few times. <laughs> hey, I got, I got one question for, I know this y'all show, but I got a question. I've never had, what the hell would you say to Gil to get Gil back in line? Because once you left, no one else could talk to Gil. Like it was like, ah, big brother left, I ain't listening to y'all. Yeah. What, what, what the hell were you saying that would get Gil back in line when he would go off on a tangent? You know what, man, it was a look. It was, it, was the, it was really the eye contact. Like, it was really the eye contact. Like, I had GA, you know what I'm saying, when he first came into the league. So, you know, when he needed to eat, I made sure that he ate. He needed clothes that everybody was wearing that he spent all his money. He couldn't go get. I made sure that he had it. So, anytime that I would look GA in the eye, he knew that that's where I was taking him back to. Like, look, it's me and you now. So, that was really, you know, that was really our process. It's our process today. When he started going off wild, I shoot him a message and be like, man, what's up? And the mad scientist that he is, he, you know, he'll laugh and he'll giggle, but some of those things change. People may not notice, but some of those things change and they don't really know why. So, you know, that's, that's, that's my brother, man. I, you know, it's, it's really that eye contact that you have. You just had a kid. Wait till you start giving that eye contact when they screaming, running all crazy. <laughs> it just, it just take that, it just take those eyes, man, to get them back in line. Now I know. All these years, I wanted to know. I thought it was a, I thought it was a catchphrase or something. It was just the eye contact. No, no. Create, create another story too, man. Ga, uh, you know, we used to play cards on on the, on the plane and whatnot. He got down to Stack, and Stack was ready to do something to him. And Ga came to me and was like, "Man, you gotta get Stack off me." So I had to go to Stack, help the Stack. Be like, you know, he's a loose cannon. You know, he's a wild boy. Don't do nothing to him. So I got, I got G. I saved G.A. not not one time, but but many many times on and off the court. Stack don't play by his money, man. <laughs> See them little things come up. Oh, it's it's, it's, it's go oh, time. Man. Stack don't stack don't play by his money, man. You better you you better off owing the IRS than owing Stack. Stack and Oak, you don't want to pay. Hey, listen, Stack and Oak are two guys that you do not want to owe money to. I, I remember I bet Oak, it was like $500 on like a football game, a college football game. I forgot that I, I forgot that I bet him until I was getting right to the practice facility. And my man was riding with me and all of a sudden I was like, yo, I got to get to an ATM. He's like, dog, you're going to be late. I said, I'd rather be late to have to owe, owe Oak some money. I'll take my chance. I'll take my chances. I'm going to go get this $500 if I know what's good for me. I was, hey, this is only my second year in the league, too? Man, please, I wasn't trying to see that smoke. I went ahead and got that money. I made it on time, but he was about to skin of my teeth. Right Oak on. had that 500 in his locker when he opened it up. Right on. Hey, hey what, what were your thoughts, man, when we walked in and, and we, got, we got MJ, we got Charles Oakley, and we got Patrick Ewing? Like, like what, are, what are your thoughts when you, you know, walking into the practice facility or just knowing that – I guess Oak was playing, but he was really on the coaching staff, but just knowing that these guys were around. I mean, what was your thoughts now? It's funny that you asked me that because I talked to Oak about that earlier this year. Um, I, I did some big three games and we were working out in the gym and we just got to talking for like 15, 20 minutes, which is crazy because I never really sat, I never really had a relationship with Oak. And so we were talking and he was talking about the young guys today and how they don't get it and this, that, and the third. And I said, Oh, it's because those young guys didn't grow up the way I did. I came into practice under you, Stack. MJ, Pat, if I wasn't doing what I was supposed to be doing, all y'all were going to get on me. And if I had anything to say, I had to fight three out of four of you. Like, that was like, I said, that doesn't exist in today's game. So I think having, like, true OGs, like, true vets that have been playing for, like, you know, eight, nine, ten years that people respected, that, like, listen, you can go back and forth, but when Oak speaks, it's time to be quiet. There's not a lot of locker rooms that have that nowadays because the league has gotten so much younger. So many guys are coming out after one year. Um, that that rule looked like it's about to fall down. Kids are going to stop in a couple of years. They're going to start going straight from high school to the league. The league is so young right now that your veterans are guys that have been playing for like six years, but they've been in the league since they were 19, so they're only 25. And so, like, for me – especially on the way in and looking at how the league was on my way out, I understood that having those veteran presences in the locker room really, really helped police things and keep some of the foolishness and unprofessionalism out of the locker rooms and practice. Because, man, when you got somebody like Oak and Mike and Stack, man, listen, you're going to play hard and you're going to practice hard or else. I I, I feel that. I feel that. It taught me too, man, is to get you a big. 
you know, get you, get you a big or enforcer that you really, you know, that you get cool with. Cause that guy's going to be with you. I mean, if you could, I mean, you couldn't come, come close to MJ, you know, mm-hmm. in the practice court. If, if Oak's on, on M's team, like you're not coming close to, to MJ. Uh, he's setting screens. He's grabbing you. Uh, but that taught me a lot as far as the relationships within the basketball game and on the court of how to support, you know, one another within the game. Like you got somebody that's chasing you down or somebody that's holding, grabbing you. You go get that big and be like, look, I need to run him off you. Help me out. And then I go to that big, say, if you help me out, I'm getting to the basket throwing that lob. So those are the things like in the basketball mind. And I teach a lot of basketball now. It's like now that I've had that experience of, of learning and understanding, like these are the things B, that I'm trying to give to the young people who are starting. I mean, even in the, in, in the middle school game, but just that mindset of if you figure out how to help your teammates within the game, you guys are going to be more successful and you're going to be more successful but you're also going to gain a friend that's probably going to be with you for longer than the basketball game. I mean, if you call MJ right now, he knows he knows exactly where Oak is at, and vice versa. And I think that that's the you know that's the beauty of the of the basketball game, especially coming up in those days. Yeah, that's key. That's definitely key. All right, so, so Brendan, I've got one I've been I've been dying to ask you about, and this was a little before Larry's time, but I just started reading this. Uh, when nothing else matters book about uh, MJ's comeback, uh, or, you know, with the wizards, with, with you guys. And there's one story early on about, I guess in practice, your, your rookie year, Kwame was feeling himself a little bit pushed MJ to play one-on-one and uh, like had an early bucket or early block or something and talked a little shit. And then MJ just demolished him after that. And at the end, you know, screamed in his face, you better call me daddy MF or, and just like went at him. Did you remember anything like that? I mean, like that kind of, dynamic between the two of them uh no I didn't see that I didn't really see that I didn't I I mean I know that Kwame was always trying to show MJ that he was deserving because we all grew up watching MJ and that was another weird dynamic of that team MJ was a player slash GM like who plays with their balls and so Kwame always tried to prove to MJ that he was worthy but MJ's like listen you can say whatever with your mouth your actions gotta do it on the court and Kwame was so young, so immature that it just didn't always work out for him. I don't remember that particular instance. I don't doubt that it didn't happen, though. But um, I just I don't remember that particular story. But no, MJ would is cutthroat. If you say anything to him in practice, uh, he is going he is going to try to find a way to get the last word. He's going to get the cooking out there. Um, he he was old, but at the end of the day, he still had that pride. So you didn't want to go. You didn't want to get too loose with the lips. And then he, like Larry said, and then he had Oakley as his enforcer. I know one day Kwame was talking to MJ, and I think Kwame was playing, but, like, Oak didn't realize he was. And then, like, we in shoot around in Chicago, like, they're going back and forth, but Oak just, like, pours a Gatorade on Kwame's head, man. And, and like, man, you don't talk to Mike like that. And then looks at, and looks at him like, what you going to do? I mean, Kwame looking at me, I'm like, man, you better, yeah, don't look over here for no help. <laughs> I'm trying to find my own way. <laughs> so, so, so listen, I, I got one just to kind of close it out, man. We, we had, um, and it's been on, you know, the internet or whatnot, but we got into a little scuffle with Chicago one year. Uh-oh. Right? We got into Chicago with a scuffle. And whatever the case is, it's really in the heat of the battle. So after that was over, it was pretty much over, so I thought. But just to let you know, when I went back to play in Chicago, I got the side eye. So when I left Cleveland to go to Chicago, and those guys, Kirk Heinrich, Lou Law, you know, BG, Ben Gordon, those guys were still there. And just talk about the, the years and the level of animosity or just tension that was there, those guys still looked at me with a little bit of side eye. So it never really goes away. If you battle between those lines as competitors, we always – kind of hold on to that it may not be now because everybody's done playing but there is always a, there's, there's 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 something there when you battle between the lines and you continuously see these guys over and over again uh there's always some get back there so just to just to keep that 100 there's always well, well Kirk probably didn't like you because like I went back and looked at the clip you, you kind of pushed Kirk hard as hell yeah yeah well I think I pushed somebody into Kirk no I thought you pushed Kirk into somebody 
I'm, I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure. I, I definitely put. I was definitely the offender. I remember because <laughs> somebody was going for a layup and you pushed Kirk Harvick into him, and yeah. then once again you'd already talked about making sure that your big had your back. Once Kirk rolled up on you, I was like, hold up. Yeah. I might not have put. I might yeah. not have fought for nobody else. Like if it was yeah. Gil, Gil's my guy, but Gil ain't passed the ball to me enough for me to fight for. So if I, I didn't even realize until I went back and watched the clip like a year later, I pushed the hell out of Kirk Conrad. Like I yeah. pushed him hard as hell. And then after that, Antonio Davis pushes me and then all hell breaks loose. And, but this is, this is how I knew Larry was my guy. Because after Antonio Davis pushes me and Larry realizes that I'm standing up for him, Antonio Davis got to be about 6'9", 6'10", all muscle. <laughs> He's a big Larry boy. Put, Larry pushes him as hard as he can, and then he tilts his head like, what up? I was like, yeah, bug. <laughs> <laughs> and, and then after that was the melee. We all just went crazy. I don't know. Like, I end up, I smacked Antonio Davis. He charges me, <laughs> tackles me. I'm a, <laughs> we on the ground wrestling. He about to get the better of me, and then my man Mike Rufflin comes out the blue, puts him in the full Nelson, and saved my life. Hey, bug, true story? Book. Uh, what's the boy's name? Mike Ruffin. The next year was in Milwaukee. Uh, he wasn't with our team like a year after that. His his daughter was talking to me about her Girl Scout cookies and how she wasn't going to meet her quota. I said, baby, your daddy saved my life. I will buy every <laughs> last one of those Girl Scout cookies. I don't even like Girl Scout cookies. I, bu- I had so many Girl Scout cookies that I was passing them around to everybody in the Wizards Arena, like the janitor, a ticket guy, anybody. Y'all want some cookies? I got Thin Mints. I got whatever you need. I had a locker full of cookies because I bought every last one of these girls, this girl's cookies because of that fight and Mike Ruffin helping save me. I don't know why I slapped Antonio Davis. I have no idea. I'm still trying to figure it out. Man, that's 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 why that's why I love y'all, man. That's you know, we 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 went out and we fought, and like I said, we we grew up, you know, in the same space and and been playing, you know, for, for a, a long time and we don't get to see each other as often as we used to, man, but but always respect, my dude. All right, man. I appreciate it, man. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, thanks yes, a lot, sir. Brendan. All right. All right, everyone. That was our interview with Brendan Haywood. We hope you enjoyed that. It was nice to hear he and Larry's you know, reflections on their days together in Washington. So those are the kind of interviews we're going to try to bring you on this podcast throughout the summer, especially without any uh, actual basketball to talk about. So Stay tuned for, for more things like that. And we've got a couple more big time guests lined up for you. So find us on social media. Let us know, you know, any comments or questions you have or suggestions for guests. We're, we're always looking for feedback. So with that, uh, this was Believe in Wizards, B-L-E-A-V in Wizards. Make sure to rate, download, subscribe, and leave a review if, uh, if you're so inclined. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.